0: So we are in week three of our series, All Grace is Amazing. And I I love that we sang Amazing Grace, we heard Amazing Grace played by the bagpipes. Uh, The the grace is just thick today. And and I I love just just being able to talk about and uh, think about exactly what God's grace means to us. Remember, we started this series talking about God's pervenient grace. And and the simple definition of what pervenient grace is, it is God's grace for us before we even know who God is. It's just just fun to think about, that, that, that God continually pours out His grace on those who do not know who God is, that God desires all people to know Him to love Him, to, to, to be in relationship with Him. And then last week we, we talked about what are the graces that, that normally doesn't get talked out a, a lot about. We, we, we move from prevenient grace all the way to justifying grace, but, but it's important to remember that there is a convicting grace. And, and this convicting grace allows us to realize that, that we are not who we think we are. We're, we're not who we think we may be, that, that, that we are truly sinful people in need of God's love and grace. Convicting grace comes in many different ways. Convicting grace comes in, in, in those just little reminders that we have, but, but the important thing to remember about convicting grace is that convicting grace is not there to shame us. Convicting grace is not there to, to make us feel less than what we are, but convicting grace is there to remind us that we are called to repent so that we could turn our lives around and so that we can follow God with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Today, today we talk about justifying grace. And, and I think justifying grace is one of those graces that when we take a look at it at face value, pretty much I think everybody understands what justifying grace is. But do we understand what justifying grace is? Do we understand exactly what it is that justifying grace fully does in each and every one of our lives? This past uh, fall, past spring, sorry, a couple weeks ago, I participated in uh, was one of the clergy for a walk to Emmaus, and I was uh, tasked with the assignment to give the justifying grace talk. I know those are maybe some unfamiliar words uh, for you if you've not done the walk to Emmaus, but I wanted to reuse one of the illustrations that I used while I was on this walk about what justifying grace is and how it relates with pervenient grace. And I talked about it like this. Uh, about a year ago, a friend of mine uh, sent me one of those coupon codes for uh, one of those uh, food uh, sharing or food uh, preparation Websites that are out there that they give you a little box of food like this and and then they give you Recipes for you to to put meals together And, and I was all excited about anything that's new and fun or what I consider fun I, I'm, I'm all for it. You know, let's give it a try and Tracy was like okay go ahead and give it a try so I we went ahead and got it and, and we got three meals in this box a- and we, we pulled the box out. We took all the food out, put it in the fridge or where it was supposed to go. And then inside there was an envelope that had three cards in it. And on, on one side of the card was a, a really, really nice picture of a meal. And whenever I looked at that, I was like, yeah, this is going to be fun. I'm going to make this. Absolutely. <laughs> and then on the back side it gives all the instructions and, and how to prepare all of the food that they gave you and everything. And, and you know, I, I looked at that and I thought, you know, this is kind of what pervenient and justifying grace is all about. Pervenient grace gives us the picture of the meal, what the meal looks like. This is what you are aiming for. This is what, or if we look at pervenient grace, this is what God has for you then justifying grace is taking all of the ingredients and stuff and, and, and making it to look like what it is on the, the, the picture. Now, if, if you're good at that, it will look like what it looks like on the picture. If you follow directions, if you fully give yourself into to what, what it says you're supposed to do, that's what it's supposed to look like. If you're like me and you want to take liberties with what the instructions say and and how things are, if you think you can do it better than what the instructions tell you to do, then it's not going to turn out the way that you want it to turn out. Most likely, you're going to end up with a big old giant mess, which is what I did, all over the kitchen. And Tracy going, you made the mess, you have to clean it up. But see, this is... You know, all analogies are, fall apart one way or another. But, but really, we have a picture of what it is that, that, that God has desired for us. We have the opportunity to accept that or reject it. To, to do what we want to do or to listen and do what God calls us to do. Our scripture for this morning gives us another picture, maybe even a better picture than what I gave you, of what justifying grace is about. And I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, or you can follow along with the words that we'll have on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes to the Romans, and he writes to us, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Justifying grace. If we were to put a a simple definition on exactly what justifying grace is, it would be this. This is from John Wesley. He says that justification is pardon or forgiveness of all past sins that come solely through faith, which is a sure trust and confidence that Christ died for my sins, that he loved me and gave himself for me. I think that's a really important definition, so I'm going to go ahead and, and read it again. Justification is Pardon or forgiveness of all past sins that come solely through faith, which is a sure trust and confidence that Christ died for my sins, that he loved me and gave himself for me. Justification is that process when we take the opportunity to realize that we are in need of God's grace, that we are convicted that our lives are empty because we don't have God in our lives. And we turn and say, God, I am powerless to do any of this on my own. I need your strength. I need your love. I need your power. One of our kids down here, I don't know if you heard him, uh, he made a a comment at the very end about the importance of having the strength of God. Excuse me. There we go. And he made this comment. He said that without the strength of God, we would die. Isn't that an amazing theological statement from, from a little one? Without the strength of God, we would die. Without the strength of God, we are totally powerless against the sin that is in our lives. Without the strength of God, we can't move forward until God extends his hands to us and welcomes us and beckons us into his life. There's a word for this and we'll talk a little bit more about this a little bit later, but that word is restoration. God is all about restoring things. What it is that God wants to restore, it's a restoration of what was originally planned for all of God's creation. We have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and, and Genesis chapter 2, the, the story of the creation. And we see that God not only says that that creation was good, but it was very good. But, but just like that meal prep plan that I talked about earlier, you know, Adam and Eve, and, and we sin to say, well, you know what, I think we can take care of all of this ourselves. And when we try to take care of it all on our own, we, we mess the picture up. We, we mess up what God has so graciously given to us, and we have sinned. And God sending Jesus to die on the cross restores things. It justifies us. It it brings us into a right relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that it makes it now the hope that we live into, the the hope that Paul talks about in Romans that, that we now hold on to and that we boast. We don't boast in ourselves, but we boast in the work that God does in and through us. Theologian Dallas Willard, he, he says it this way. He says that grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sin alone. I think we miss that part sometimes. We, we think that, that once I'm forgiven, we're all good and everything is good to go. But no, we miss out on a big, important part of what it is that God is doing in our lives. God is calling us to be active or, or, or to give effort into our salvation, but knowing full well that the effort that we put on it isn't to earn anything. It is to fully put into action and put into place the gift that God has given us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Another thing that Paul talks about when he is mentioning this passage in Romans is that even though we may have God's grace and even though we may be justified, it does not give us a get-out-of-jail-free card. And what I mean by that is that we are going to have trouble in our lives, there's a saying that says that if you are going through a moment of your life right now where you don't have any trouble, well, well hold on. It's on its way. And that is so true. There are so many times in my life where, where things are great and I give thanks to God and then something happens. But, but Paul reminds us that through justification, we don't face our trials alone. But our trials are being faced and met with Christ by our side. And with Christ by our side, as Paul says, the suffering will produce perseverance. The perseverance will produce character and character and character will produce hope. That is good news, my friends. That is good news. Wherever you are, it may be right now, whatever may be happening in your life, keep going through it. And know that God is there beside you. And that character that is being built will provide that hope. And that hope is a sh- true and sure confidence that Christ is there for you. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about how justification happens. Sometimes we, we get confused about how justification may happen in one life towards another. And we have a a couple of examples in scriptures about how justification moves in people's lives. The first one, and probably the most obvious one that we have, is the life of Paul. You may remember him who wrote the letter that we're we're talking about here in Romans, but he was also at one time a guy by the name of Saul. And Saul was a, a very high falutin, if you will, leader in the, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in, in the Jewish faith. And he so much hated these people that connected themselves with this person by the name of Jesus Christ. He hated them so much that he would go all over the place to try to round them up, to bring them into Jerusalem so that they could be punished for their crimes of following Jesus and not the one true God that the Jews believed in. But if you're familiar with Paul's story, you know that he was on his way to Damascus. And on his way to Damascus, he met the living Christ, and and, and he was blinded, and and, and Christ spoke to him. And and through that moment, he had 100% justification that Christ was real. And from that one moment on, he turned and he became one of the strongest leaders of the church, writing so many letters, planting so many churches, being, being somebody that we still talk about today for his influence in Christ's church. But there's another story of somebody who is justified in Scripture that we don't really talk about that much. His name is Timothy. We have a couple of books that Paul wrote to Timothy, but, but in those books, we don't hear about this amazing, wonderful transition or, or moment where, where Timothy became a Christian, but we hear these phrases that if you remember from a couple of weeks ago during Mother's Day, uh, Miss Terry shared with our little ones during young disciples' time. She talked about Timothy's mom and grandma and, and how they helped him grow in his faith, and bit by bit, slowly by slowly, he, he became a strong Christian, and he was one that, that Paul took out with him to, to do all of this church planning and preaching about who Jesus is. The founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, he also has a very powerful conversion story, if you will, or, or justifying moment, if you will. Actually, we're coming up on to it here pretty soon. On May the 24th, we call that Aldersgate Day. A- and that is the day where, where John Wesley professed his faith that he was truly justified by God. On May 24th, 1738, in his journal, he wrote these words. He said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust In Christ, Christ alone, for salvation. And as assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley would would take that path of Timothy. If you're familiar with his story, he was born in the church. His dad was a priest. His mom, Susanna, was a very powerful speaker and a very powerful teacher that, that taught all of John Wesley's brothers and sisters. And, and he grew up and he knew that he wanted to become a pastor and, and, and he preached faith until he actually had it. John Wesley knew that there was this new movement of people moving across the sea to this new land, and he wanted to go over and preach to the the Native Americans that were there at the time and to convert people to Jesus Christ, but that didn't go so well for him. And, And he came back over the, uh, the, those, the ocean back to England and did his own ministry there, started up some things and then on this event on May 24th, 1738 he knew he knew that God had him that Christ was his for salvation and he was given assurance. Sometimes we, we desire to have those Paul stories I know I've gone to many different meetings or, or youth events or activities where you have somebody standing up on stage and say, this is how I came to faith. I was living a life that was horrible, so darn and, and, and deep and despair and sin and everything. And then I woke up and I became a Christian. I want everybody else to become a Christian because I'm a Christian now. And that's great. That story is awesome, and I think it's a great story to hear from somebody, but I think maybe most of our conversion stories are like Timothy's, or maybe like John Wesley. I know that's my story. I feel very fortunate that I have always grown up in church. I was baptized a month after I was born at Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Hutchinson, Kansas. I went to Sunday school. I went to Wednesday night programs. I, I went to what we called youth club at the time, which is kind of like our, our jam program. I, I went through two years of confirmation because that's what we did as, as Lutherans. I went through youth group and, and all of that time, I know that I love Jesus. I, I know that Jesus was a part of my life and Jesus loved me too, but it was when I was in middle school that I really knew. I have an older brother, Dave, which I know who I've talked about here or there, and I may have shared this story, bits or pieces of it, but but whenever I was in fourth grade, Dave was in seventh grade, and he was doing the youth thing, and we had a brand-new youth director who would take us to concerts. And so while Dave was going to concerts like Petra, uh, Carmen, uh, Don Francisco, you know, uh, th- those, those type of good Christian music concerts and everything. I was the little brother jealous sitting at home with the cassette tapes that my brother would bring home and play them in into the, into the little cassette deck and, and play just to listen to the music that he got to hear live. But when I turned and was in seventh grade, <coughs> I had the opportunity to go on one of these concerts, my, my very first Christian concert with the youth group. And as I went on that concert, it it was for a band by the name of DeGarmo and Key. And they were one of those just just phenomenal for me. Christian rock bands there in the 1980s. Just solid keyboard playing, guitar riffs, all of that stuff. I loved the concert. And, And as the concert was going through, I started to feel something. And at the very end of the concert... Dana Key, who was the lead singer of DeGarmo and Key, he, he gave an invitation. He said, there may be some of you who may want to dedicate your life to Jesus Christ tonight. And at that moment, I felt something. And, and, and us Lutherans, we, we, we really don't move or act with stuff like this. We, we have a very liturgical background and you, you go to worship and you, and you sit in the pews and you stand up and you sit down and you stand up and you sit back down again and when the service is over, you leave. I don't remember ever having an altar call at a Lutheran worship service before, so this was brand new to me. And, and when Danny Key said, I would like people to come forward, I looked at my brother who was sitting beside me and said, I'm going and I was off. All of the other youth in my youth group are like, "Looking, what in the world is he doing? Because we don't do this. So I stood up front, and Key prayed over all of us, and then he invited us back into the backstage area, so I went. Made the entire youth group wait for me until after the concert was over. I'm at, I can't remember how long I was back there, but, but I went. And there, Danny Key and some of the other band members shared Christ again, and, and they handed us Bibles, and I actually still have the Bible that I have in my office. And, and there I knew why my heart felt warm. There I knew that I trusted in Christ, to use the words of John Wesley. I trusted for Him alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sin, even as a seventh grader, and saved me from the law of sin and death. See, the beauty of justification is that we are changed because of God's love for us. There's no other reason why we are changed. We are changed because of God's love for us. For us. It doesn't matter if we're a child or, or a teen or an adult, if we're our, our just horrible, just way out in the middle of everywhere in our sin, or if we are, are, are more, more cautious in our sin. God brings us to Him through justification. God brings us to a point of reconciliation that allows His love to penetrate us so that our love may penetrate the world around us. So, so how does this restoration work? Well, the first thing that works is that this restoration restores our relationship with God. If we take a look at the cross, it gives us a good picture of how this looks. That is that vertical beam. That, that vertical beam, while it may only be so tall, that, that restoration is what God does to, to stretch us to Him. There's a saying that I love to use with youth and with confirmands about justifying faith. It's a saying that goes that justifying faith is just as if I have never sinned. Just as if I have never sinned. That is what justification does for us. But it's more than that. It's more than just looking like we are saved. It's being changed wholly. From the inside out. Jesus had a problem with this with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very good at being very uh, letitious lat- with, with what they did. and they, they had all these laws and everything, and Jesus called on them and said, Look, I don't care what your laws say you do. If you don't change what's on the inside, what happens on the outside doesn't matter. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 23, he talks about cleaning of a cup. Is so you can clean the cup all you want on the outside, but if there is gunk and filth on the inside, that cup ain't never gonna get cleaned. That cup will still be dirty. Remember, when Mom and Dad would tell me to do the dishes whenever the b- dishwasher was broken. I did a really good job of making sure that outside of the cup looked nice, so I could put it up on the shelf and go somewhere else. But I know I didn't get the cup clean. But, but the really the ma- best way to clean yourself is to really focus on how do I clean out the inside of the cup because when you clean the inside of the cup, guess what? There is no way in the world that that outside of the cup is not going to get cleaned. If you are focusing on the inside of the cup, that water is going to splash over the side and, and you're going to have to dry it off and you're going to have to rub it off and the soap is going to affect all of that and that whole cup is going to get cleaned. If you do the shortcut where you clean the outside of it, it's not going to get clean. If we try to do the shortcut and just clean the outside of us, guess what? We're still going to be sinners. We're still going to be unclean. But, but that relationship with God is restored, and we, we give our hearts and lives to God saying, I am yours. And the second act of that restoration of that, it affects the people around us and that God then calls us to restore our relationship with others. Jesus gave us two commands. He said to love you, Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is an act of reconciliation. That is an act of restoration. That is what God calls us to do, And what Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, where he says, all this is from God. All of this reconciliation is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are given this ministry. Isn't that exciting? We have the opportunity to be a part, be reconcilers to the world around us. And as God reconciles the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them, and as he committed to us the message of reconciliation, we are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God was making his appeal through us. And we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. There is a problem with reconciliation. There is a problem with justifying grace, though. Now, justifying grace is amazing. Justifying grace is valid and important and very vital to our lives. But the problem with justifying grace is that people look at it as the goal. That once I'm justified, that's it. I don't have to do anything else there is nothing else that I need to do. Remember what Wellard said? Grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. That when we are justified, we are then called to move forward. Last week when I gave you the example of, of the front of the house, the porch was the convicting grace that we step onto saying, God, we need help? The door is an entry point. It's not the final place. You don't go to your house and just open up the door and just stand there on the door jamb, do you? No, you go into the house and you live. You live in your house that you have. You you eat food in the kitchen, you you have entertainment in the, in the in the living room, you you get your rest and nourishment in, in the bathroom, in the bedroom. All of those things are there for you to enjoy, and that is just like God's grace. God does not call us to stop at justifying grace, but we move forward knowing that God has something deeper and better for us or as John Wesley would say, it is moving on to Christian perfection. And we're going to talk about exactly what that means because I know there's confusion about it. It's something that can be laughed about. There's no way in the world I'm going to be perfect. But that's not what God calls us to be. God calls us to be holy just as he is holy. <clears throat> but I wanted to do something today. As we talk about justifying grace, I know that there are times in our lives where we may wonder, does God really love me? Does God really care for me? Or, or maybe I feel like God has, uh, maybe my relationship with God ha- has slipped. And I would like to rededicate my life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to offer that as maybe we uh, go into our final hymn of this morning. That maybe, maybe you feel like as we talk about what justifying grace is, maybe you're saying, God, I want my life to be justified with you. I want to have that feeling of assurance. And I want to give my life to you. Maybe that's something you haven't done in your life at all. Maybe you have never given your life over to Jesus Christ. I can't think of a better time to do that than today. To come forward and say, God, I, I give myself to you. I know that I am a sinner. I know that I have not done your will. I have broken your laws. I have hurt people around me. But because of your love, because of your grace, I give myself to you, holy and truly, so that I may live as your blessed child. I invite you to stand and close with us at our closing hymn. And I'll be standing over here, and I know some of you may not want to move because of the cameras. Jared will make sure that it's not trailing you if you walk over here to, to meet with me. But if you would like to be anointed with oil and prayed over during our closing hymn, I invite you to do so. As we stand, as we end our worship with our hymn of commitment, number 400, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Let us stand and sing.